Welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Psychological safety at work is a huge topic worldwide right now. In Australia specifically, there's been changes in the law regarding an employer's duty of care. If you're not across it or are wondering where to start, you're in luck. On today's episode of EI at Work, we have Steve Bell, Managing Partner at Herbert Smith Freehills. He's an expert in health and safety issues and workplace injury-related litigation. Of course, we also have Dr. Ben Palmer, CEO of Genos International and our resident emotional intelligence expert. And I'm your host, Marielle Daggle. Welcome, Steve, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Marie. And hello again, Ben. Nice to see you and speak to you. Likewise, Marie, and thank you, Steve. I'm really looking forward to this discussion around this important topic. Me too, and there's been such a huge spotlight um, on the topic of psychological safety, although it's not new. So for 12 years since the Work Health and Safety Act 2011, employers have had a duty of care to ensure the health and safety of their workers, and that includes psychological safety. So, Steve, I might start with you. What's changed? Look, that is a great question, and you're you're dead right. Um, We've had health and safety laws for decades in, in Australia, and it's always been the case that employers have got a responsibility to think through what they can do to reasonably, practicably, that's the legal test. You won't hear that down at the pub, but that's the <laughs> that's the legal test. It was reasonably practicable to keep people safe at work, including psychological safety. In truth, what uh, has happened historically is that most of the activity in this jurisdiction has been about really serious, obvious, physical slash psychosocial interactions, bullying at work, aggression at work. That's where the bulk of the prosecution activity in this jurisdiction has been. And what's changed over the last little while has been the introduction of some positive duties to think about psychosocial safety in a really broad way. Uh, And that's the difference Uh, we've now got across New South Wales, Northern Territory, WA, the Tasmania, the Commonwealth Government, and Queensland, all of those states have introduced a positive express duty of care to think through psychosocial risks at work. And we should should talk about that as we go through. So uh, firstly, I might ask Ben what the current climate is like from a psych safety perspective. Um, And then I'd love to understand exactly what the obligations are under those new updates, Steve. So Ben, what's the climate like? I think the climate's very tough for the community at the moment. But rising interest rates, you've got lots of issues associated with fire, flood, COVID and things like that still rummaging on. And uh, I think organisations where the current climate for psychological safety isn't great are often those that face into the public, education, healthcare, aged care, police and emergency services, um, transport, public transport. There are, you know, often issues to do with Um, how the public interacts with those type of organisations. Of course, more broadly, I think in the corporate sector, there's two types of organisations, in my opinion, that suffer from poor psychosocial safety um, factors. Mm -hmm. The one type of culture where I think psychological safety is low is actually very nice and polite. Everybody's very friendly with each other for fear of disrupting Kind of relationships. Now, why is that not psychologically safe? Well, in that kind of environment, people don't feel confident and capable of challenging the status quo, calling out unwanted behaviour. In fact, they tend to walk past it and uh, speaking up 
when things aren't going how they think it should be. So those overly polite cultures, while they can feel nice, often you get a lot of people nodding when they're really, you know, not feeling the right way about mm-hmm. how things are in the workplace. The second type of culture that's kind of at the other end of that, of course, is one that's too, for want of a better word, perhaps Donald Trump-like. Um, not enough empathy. People are too blunt. Leaders have got their foot on the gas too much and are not concerned about the way people feel, the mindset is. People are paid here to do a job. We're high achievement orientated and we've got to get on with it. And you see a lot of that sometimes in um, in all types of organisations. So that's how I describe the current climate. Yeah, I hope that's not a, a, a terrible picture, but yeah, I think it's a realistic one for a lot of people. So is that so? Have these incidences of psychological unsafety increased recently, and that's what's driven the change from a legal perspective, Steve? Oh, I think uh, a few things have driven the driven the change. Um, uh, a key sort of trigger for re- reflection about the impact of work on psychosocial safety, I think, has to have been the respect at work reports of the report that. Uh, the Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins performed to review, you know, what's the experience, particularly of women at workplaces. Mm-hmm. And the story was poor. The story was exceptionally poor. And that led to, I think, a snowballing of the conversation about what is the regulatory response to this. Mm-hmm. Probably, historically, there wasn't a desire to do much at the Commonwealth level, no single federal law. So instead, uh, the states and territories um, moved, you know, quite quickly, frankly, to introduce some positive duties of care at the state level. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, covers a range of things, sexual harassment, the duty to mitigate bullying at work, the sort of customer aggression that Ben's, you know, rightly spoken about, a positive obligation to have a plan, to think through the things that can cause uh, psychosocial hazards at work, what the risks are of those arising, and then what the suite of risk controls is. So employers have, have had to sort of, bundle up, I suppose, a lot of thinking uh, in relation to the way in which they're meeting these positive legal obligations now. Uh, A bit about the sort of standard practice, HR training, telling people not to bully each other, that's something. But the demand now is to be far more reflective on the actual lived experience of people at work. As Ben rightly said, you know, the actual context in which people are facing interactions with each other, their job, the way their job's designed, the control they've got over it and to be rigorous in the way that we've had to be about ordinary physical health and safety to now be as rigorous on psychosocial safety. And, and to be frank, that's a you know an emerging skill set for, for most businesses. It's a real step change. And it, and it applies to businesses of all size, not just large corporates? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Now, if you're, if you're an employer uh, of, of one person or, or a thousand or 10,000, you know, the expectation is the same. The scale is different, obviously, you know, mm. what you need to do and the the capacity, you know, of a small business, to, to be frank, to have a conversation with their staff about uh, the impacts on their mental health at work and the stressors, it's probably better, it's probably easier than it is to do this at scale across, you know, an organisation that has thousands of retail or other, um, you know, uh, workplaces. But the expectations are the same. You know, understand the risks, do something about them, um, is is the message across any business of any size? Um, and is there an or else? Yeah, well, the or, the or else is uh, first that the people 
might leave work in worse condition than they arrived. That's the ultimate yeah. or else, of course. Yeah. Uh, and then the or else, uh, that's that's not the lawyer's answer, right? The lawyer's answer is or else, uh, then there's a, a, a regulatory regime. Regulators like Safe Work New South Wales, WorkSafe yeah. Victoria, uh, can knock on the door of any employer, ask them what it is they are doing to meet this positive duty of care. Mm-hmm. And if they think they're not doing enough or if there's been an incident and they're investigating, you know, the business's response or the circumstances that led to it, mm-hmm. then they can run an investigation and ultimately a, a criminal prosecution. You know, mm-hmm. when my team and I uh, work with clients who are alleged to have breached the health and safety law for whatever reason, mm-hmm. we deal with in the criminal courts, the ordinary, you know, the magistrates court down in Melbourne, the district court up in New South Wales. That's the, that's what's at stake uh, is, mm-hmm. a, is a is a criminal allegation and a conviction and a fine for a, a company or even for the people who work within it. Steve, I was going to ask you, can I, Mary, just jump in here about insurance? Yeah. Um, Let's say an organisation has been negligent in the sense that they knew they didn't have a psychologically safe workplace and did nothing about it. Are there there insurers still obligated to insure them against these fines and things like that? Or do you want to just talk to that a little bit if you can? Yeah. So, um, you know, the core principle of insurance is that insurance shouldn't really cover you for a criminal fine. You know, Ben, you and I drive on the freeway on the way home, we get a speeding ticket, well, more for us, right? We shouldn't be able to then turn around and ask for somebody to cover that cost. That's our that's our criminal risk. We've, we've breached the law. There's a personal consequence. So in principle, uh, you ought not be able to get insurance that covers a fine. Now, there are some states and territories where you can, but there are also some states and territories where it's expressly prohibited. Victoria, for example, has just introduced this law to say that you cannot, it's unlawful to take out an insurance policy that would cover you for the outcome of a worksafe prosecution for the penalty that might arise. Mm. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an uninsurable risk. And bear in mind, none of this is about a worker and a worker receiving damages or weekly payments or that's all workers' compensation, separate world. This is about fault and blame. Uh, and in that world, there's a consequence, and the consequence can be a fine or, you know, j- jail time for the most reckless of conduct uh, at an individual mm. level. Very, very, very rare, mm. extremely rare, but nevertheless, that's part of the spectrum of what what consequence can be. And then there's consequences for the organisation from a lot of different perspectives, right, Ben? Like, for example, Comcare had some research um, that they conducted last year where they found that for the the average time off work for someone with a psychological injury was 25 weeks. What are the organisational consequences, Ben? Well, there are huge costs associated with, um, you know, backfilling roles and, um, recruitment, talent retention, talent attraction, all those sorts of things are now, you know, big issues on the P&L of organisations in the tight labour market that we are, if we just even take out the moral obligation of it for a, for a moment. But, yeah, I think, you know, there are huge costs when somebody goes on stress-related leave. Um, there are huge costs on the uh, the rest of the workforce around that individual and uh, if people, and a lot of people, I'm sure Steve's probably got the stats with him, but, you know, when somebody goes out on stress-related leave, they very rarely actually come back to the workplace um, if that stressor has been quite significant. And so, um, yeah, the recruitment, replacement, retention costs, all those things are bad. Then finally, the big impact, of course, too, is on your so-called employment brand. Uh, you can jump on Indeed, LinkedIn, any of those big sites now and look at people's 
comments on organisations they've left and why they've left them. And I think that is a big starting place for people thinking about joining an organisation. You know, I'm thinking about joining this aged care uh, organisation. Well, jump online and have a look at the reviews from staff on it. Um, there's so much information at people's fingertips now that uh, if you haven't got a psychologically safe workplace, uh, I think the public uh, more than ever know about it. I think there'd also be an impact on things like innovation, the ability to collaborate as a team, your workplace culture, things that take a very long time to work on and improve. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that, Steve, you probably have seen more companies getting um, culture or psychological safety wrong. And Ben, given you help companies address psychological safety, you probably see people doing it right. I'm going to start with Steve because he's our guest. What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen companies make and what have been the consequences? Um. Look, you know, I have some wonderful clients, Marie, and they are trying <laughs> really, really hard. Uh, See why so, you shouldn't you know, assume? Uh, uh, Tell no, us what they're doing. But, but, you know, we spend as, as, as much time around the board table discussing this in a positive sense as we do at the bar table at court talk, talking about this in a negative sense. So, you know, I get to see kind of both both ends. This is really challenging. There's just no two ways about this. This is asking for a degree of sophistication and a skill set that doesn't necessarily exist in every organisation. It is asking for organisations to draw together teams across HR, health and safety, risk, corporate management, ops, and to have, you know, real-world discussions about the issues affecting people at work. That is hard. That is the hard bit, to, to be honest, is actually identifying the who and the skill set and the resources to have this space in busy organisations to, to pause and ask these sorts of questions about themselves. So organisations that are doing it well are, are drawing a lot together. Organisations that are struggling, to be honest, don't know where this goes and they're a little frozen about what it is they should be doing. But it's, it's you know, a range of things that need to be thought through. You know, how, how a business is going to respond to somebody with serious mental illness in the workplace is actually a totally different school of thought than how you deal with the mental health impacts of the way in which you design work or supervise people or give them job yeah. security. To this other end of that spectrum, all important to, to how do we design jobs that allow people to thrive? What is the leadership capability? What is the degree of internal civility? How do we deal with customers? How do we deal with customer aggression? How do we deal with, uh, you know, the way in which our staff interface with our customers as well? So there's a, you know, just uh, there is just so much to think about. The challenge for employers, to answer your question, I suppose, where to start? Um, and and the advice is you've just got to start, you know, start having this conversation and, and inform it with your intuitive sense uh, at a leadership level of where the hotspots are, where people are working alone, where you know there are high impact, high stress, low job control parts of the job, where there are those customer interfaces, you know, dealing with the sorts of issues that Ben spoke about. Have that intuitive sense, qualify that with speaking to some of the people actually doing that work and then have a then have a plan. It's easy to say, it's hard to, mm. to execute on, to be honest. What I see organized doing organizations doing really is trying to work on, in my humble opinion, three key pillars of it. One pillar of it being the job design, the nature of the work, the job security piece, um, and so on. So trying to get that right, which is no easy uh, feat for, for some organisations. The second piece is what I call the reactive mental health piece, which Steve's been talking about. 
helping educating people leaders and others around what does a mental health issue look like um how do we perhaps tell when somebody might have a mental health issue and how do we handle that um having that's everything from having the eap provider encouraging managers to reach out and just check in with their staff uh and and really knowing what to do when somebody has a serious mental health issue um, pop up for them let's call that the reactive piece mm. And then the third piece I call the proactive bit, this is the bit that Genos does a lot of work in, which is the positive psychosocial culture part, um, yeah. that people feel confident and capable to speak up, that people challenge the, the status quo when they feel to, the leaders not walk past unwanted behaviours or, or walk past it. Um, that's the bit I think is quite I think organisations have always worked on that, but not necessarily from the point of view of needing to do it from an occupational health and safety mm. point of view. And so I think the new part, Steve, that I'm sort of seeing is a lot of organisations saying, gee, we better really do the listening sessions, the organisational survey. Let's really understand how our people are feeling about their work and the relationships that they have at work. And uh, I'm finding organisations leaning particularly into that space with programs really that help people um, step into authentic dialogue with each other and call out, um, you know, wherever there are people, there's conflict and that's not going to go away, but having scaffolds, protocols and ways of working that recognise that conflict and lean into it, I think is a very healthy part of psychological safety. So I mean, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, there's so much focus now on how it is you deal with a person who is a victim of adverse behaviour at work. And what we used to do, we, community, industry, mm. what used to be done was you'd wait for a complaint and then you'd deal with the complaint. Um, and sometimes you would deal with that complaint in a way which meant that the story of what happened is not told to anybody because it's dealt with in a confidential way mm. and it's not brushed under the carpet, but it's, it's attempted to be dealt with in a way which manages reputational risk but hasn't been pointed out. Reputational risk now exists whether or not you deal with these things quietly or not. And so actually the real step change is a is a more victim-centric way of thinking about the response to significant adverse events at work in a way which means that we're not asking them to be quiet about it. We're inviting them to reflect on how they want that story to be shared in a workplace. We're thinking about the due process, of course, for the person they're complaining about. But the, the, the sophistication, I think, of the way in which great organisations are thinking about these sorts of things in the workplace has, has had a massive change over the years from, uh, you know, keeping this quiet and dealing with somebody and perhaps paying some money to actually saying, well, this is a leading indicator for what might be a broader problem. How do we deal with the broader problem? Which is, you know, it's the sort of thing that Ben's talking about. It's a real change and for the better, frankly. Yeah, definitely. Who's leading this change internally? Like is this, whose responsibility is it to make all of this happen? Is it is it HR? Is it the company, the management, who, who should be driving this? Well, I mean, the twee response is, you know, everyone's responsible for safety and so everyone, everyone says that. But if you tell everyone everyone's responsible for, uh, uh, you know, cooking dinner, then nobody will cook dinner, right? So <laughs> somebody somebody needs to actually take charge of this. And so what I'm perceiving in in, in my clients is that there's a, a skill set here that nests well with health and safety professionals, the skill set of having a sense of risk risk management, the language of risk controls, having that sort of discipline. 
But that's the framework. The, the, the population of that risk management thinking can't be done by a health and safety professional alone, I right. think. There's a need to draw in, you know, specialists, psychologically trained uh, expertise, a need to draw in the HR experience because that will give you a, a sense of what's going on and a need to draw in the actual on-the-ground experience of those doing the actual work, you know, in a consultative way. So, you know, there's there's no doubt that by putting these laws in the health and safety regime, my clients, health and safety professionals, necessarily need to get involved, but I don't think any of them honestly think that they can answer this challenge is a social challenge as much as anything else. And so there's a need for that kind of multidisciplinary, you know, approach that, that I know we've been talking about. Mm. I think uh, that boards of direct directors at the board level um, need to have psychological safety on their agenda, maybe not at every meeting, but at least biannually or um, perhaps even quarterly, having some sort of report on how things are tracking and going. Are we on the three pillars that we were talking about before and what sort of activities are going on? Because I think it's a continuous cycle of improvement that needs to happen for most organisations out there at the moment. Yeah. Um, but the key responsibility, yes, I would agree with um, with Steve. And I think this notion um, that leading psychological safety is everyone's business uh, is a really great almost mantra to have around it in, in workplaces. And I think organisations that are really building a psychologically safe environment, um, particularly on that third pillar, the proactive part, aren't just educating people leaders on how to call out unwanted behaviour and how to create a um, a pleasant working environment for, for all. I think they're really training all staff on those sorts of things because, um, you know, people leaders just don't see sometimes a lot of the behaviour that goes on uh, between colleagues, for example. They often hear about it. Um, but they are, to Steve's point, they hear about it when it's become the problem that they now need to address as opposed to having the team um, proactively working on it with each other. So I think organisations that are really doing well in this space, in my opinion, are bringing all staff across the need to, we're all leaders of psychological safety. And what that means is, you know, we have the confidence and the capability to um, to speak up, to ask each other how we're going, to um, potentially flag things when they aren't going so well and uh and so on yeah i, I mean i i wouldn't disagree with that at all that there's a you know a top to bottom set of accountabilities uh and definitely this is a you know and, and I, I get the pleasure of helping the boards of you know some really big branded companies and they are asking these questions they're really they're really focused on it if you look at you know the experience of what's been happening over in western australia in this resources sector over there across a range of organizations it is just clear that the experience of the the lived experience of the team at work uh, is driving significant change. Spending a lot of money on things which create safe environments, reflecting on history, you know, making um, a genuine commitment to change. It's it's really inspiring, and that, and that is coming down from you know the top. And to be frank, they're not doing this because the laws change. They're doing this because there's been a range of things which have shone a spotlight on the need to do this to survive uh, and, and to have a workforce uh, who, are, who are equipped to deal with the challenges of those organisations. But there's a lot of inspiration around, I think, at, at really senior levels. And then there's a lot of courage needed at the lower level to raise these concerns, the very thing that you're talking about, Ben, having a genuine response to a psychologically safe environment is to actually then feel and to do uh, the raising of those sorts of issues. 
It's interesting you should mention courage. We have a three C's model, which is kind of three mindsets that we teach people. You've got to be courageous. Um, We talk about the next C being curious. You've got to really say, well, this is my point of view on what's happening around the world. What's yours? Because I think solving a lot of these things proactively is is really about engaging in sense-making, recognising that different people are going to have different points of view. How do we bring those points of view together and move forward? And, and of course, that also involves the third C, which is to collaborate around it, you know, not not to sort of work out what each party is going to do differently. Steve, I want to put the black hat on for a moment with you and share with you um, something that... uh, is going, I won't I won't sort of say what type of organization other than it was an emergency services type organization sure. who said, oh, all this psychological safety stuff, you know, what it's given our people uh is three or four different agencies within the organization they can now go and whinge to. So sure. we're seeing this massive increase in bullying claims that we never had. And um this is, you know, all this kind of woke stuff uh that's yeah. just really getting way out of control and way out of hand. So yep. obviously there's a mindset there, but there's some, sure. you know there's probably a grain of truth perhaps in it as well. What's your reflection? Do you hear that kind of thing? And what's your reflection on that mindset? Oh, you'd be naive, I think, to think that's not uh, a concern. Um, that you know, the more we talk about this, the more we're creating a rod for our own back. More we're creating an you know unsolvable problem in a, in a workplace. I suppose my reflection on it is this that the lived experience of people who are raising those concerns is what it is. So you might as well hear about it. And if you dismiss it as something which is trivial or nothing can be done about it, so be it. But you're better to hear than not hear. Better they tell you. There's lots of external agencies in the in, uh, outside of that organisation they can pick up the phone to and suddenly you're embroiled in some external regulatory event. So you're better knowing. But I, but I do agree, Ben, there's, a, there's at the heart of that, you know, uh, perhaps apocryphal sort of complaint, at the heart of that there is where do we draw the line? Where, where do we draw the line? And, and I think there's a, it is okay, I think, to say we cannot make everyone happy at work. We cannot give everyone a stress-free working experience. To do that is to squash innovation, to make sure we have no change in organisations, that we squash entrepreneurialism or risk, risk-taking in a commercial sense. If we created a stress-free, happy work environment, organisations would fail because that is not the that is not the, the ticket to success. Mm. So we have to say, well, where are we drawing a line, and what is the level of materiality that we're going to respond to? And to be frank, that is the stuff of leadership. You know that that is taking this. You know, you and I are speaking about this as professionals, uh, helping an organisation say, well, here's a challenge, stare into it. Leaders then need to say, well, where do we where do we draw some lines on this? What are the things that we think are material issues that we're going to stare into and, and resolve. Um, that's the challenge, right? That's the exciting moment, I think, is, yes. is, is there's a new for that, which is really bespoke to the context that organisations find themselves in. And I think this speaks to the degree of sophistication that people leaders need to have around this because I think yeah. what you're really hinting at there and not and being quite explicit about is leaders need to be able to really evaluate context around an individual and okay. take that kind of thing into account and work with what I call equity. You know, um, equality is, you know, taking the same approach across an in a workforce. It feels like the kind of um, 2010s to me. Where we're at today is actually taking an individualised approach across a workforce because that's yep. the level of sophistication. So by way of example, you know, here's a young mother or a young father of three kids, not two and four, and 
they're just going through a divorce. That person's not sleeping much. Or they're not going through a divorce, but they're just not sleeping much, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they used to love working 70 hours a week and being very innovative and had a real drive, and now they don't. The employer could be sitting back being quite disappointed about what's going on there. I think a sophisticated people leader recognises that particular set of circumstances and context and starts to adjust what's going on around that individual accordingly. Yep. And I would just add to that, Ben, though, that then there's a, so I, I agree with you that most, I mean, frankly, most safety decisions are made in small teams. They're not, they're not made at board tables or executive tables. But I think there are some framing decisions that are made by really senior leadership across the sorts of organisations I have to do with large ones about asking the question, well, what is our parental leave genuine commitment for people returning from parental leave? What, what is it we do that enables success at the macro level? And you're right, the execution is going to sit on leaders and, and leadership investment is never wasted. No organisation will tell you you shouldn't invest in leaders. And in this area in particular, I think it's, it's you know, well, well rewarded. But there's a broader question too about well, what, how are we setting people up for success and to thrive in the environments that they're in, noting that they will have their own struggle and they will come to work with the challenges that their personal context is what it is. But how is it we can structurally reflect on, you know, setting them up for success? So there's there's two levels to it, I think, organisational and, and human. Yeah, no, absolutely. Stephen, when, when exactly did the, the law in this space change? Well, progressively, over, over the past sort of six to 12 months or so, various states have been introducing what's referred to as a model set of laws. So there's a, a, a peak body called Safe Work Australia. They published a model chapter of the work health and safety regulations dealing with this issue, which says, you know, to do the things we've been talking about, identify psychosocial hazards and have a written risk assessment and then have a plan to control them in simple terms. Uh, and those laws have been progressively introduced across the states and territories um, with little tweaks and amendments as you go through. But, but by and large, we're moving to a steady state where every state and territory is introduced. And Victoria has always, for, for historical reasons, gone its own way on health and safety. So they're not part of the model laws. They've got mm -hmm. their own Occupational Health and Safety Act. But they've got out for consultation at the moment a big, you know, significant uh, chapter they're introducing into our, I'm based in Melbourne here, into at my local uh, state OHSA. So that'll introduce, I imagine, over the balance of this year too. Uh, the headline point, I think, is now's the time, you know, now's, now's the time to be clear that you have an understanding of what's asked of you as an employer and that you can demonstrate movement. Um, you're at risk if you're a national employer or, or an employer in any of our states, you are at risk if you haven't moved uh, on this. Mm. Now, it's not to say you need to reach a standard of perfection straight away. No one's going to yeah. go from 0 to 100, but, but there's probably a diminishing excuse for not starting. Right. Are you across um, the? Are you across work health and safety laws in New Zealand and, and how do they compare? I ask because we do have quite a few listeners in um, New Zealand. Do you know what's going on there? I, I can't say that I know whether or not there's a specific uh, chapter being introduced to the, to the New Zealand regulations has really been driven by Safe Work Australia. But if you were to look across the sweep of history, uh, New Zealand introduced almost identical health and safety laws four or five years after we introduced them in Australia. Yeah. And just just so happens they picked them up and they they thought they were a good model and they adopted them. Um, so there's every reason to think some change like this is coming uh, across New Zealand. You know, the, the governments who fund workers' comp regimes 
in, in putting aside the morality of this and the, the, mm-hmm. the social need, mm-hmm. are highly motivated to reduce the number of stress claims on those systems because they're expensive claims. Because as Ben says, uh, you know, a stress claim in inverted commas, but a, a mental health injury at work has a long, long tail. It's hard to get people back. People suffer serious, you know, life-changing consequences of all of that. So there's a there's a cost, you know, to not be too blunt about it. There's a cost on the state. Uh, so the state's doing everything it can, pulling every lever to try and mitigate that risk in a financial sense, that impact, amongst all the other reasons they've got for making these changes. So I would I would imagine that that's a strong motivator across the pond as it is uh, here in Australia. Ben, what are you seeing in New Zealand? Um, I think there's uh, the same sort of variability that we have here in Australia in the New Zealand space. Some companies are doing very well. They're working across those three pillars of things that we've been talking about, job design, the reactive and the proactive um, parts of psychological safety. But, of course, there are organisations over there, just as there are here, that do need to do a lot better. In fact, on that note, I was going to bounce off, Steve, one thing that I do still see go on um, a lot in organisations is the dressing up uh, or the overly positive communication to boards of directors, company directors, about the culture of the business. I think a lot of organisations do, for example, an organisational effectiveness or employee survey, the executive, the HR, uh, look at that survey and dress up certain parts of it that then get communicated to the board. Um, and my my fine kind of advice to boards of directors, to company chairpersons, is um, you've actually got to be, get a bit more active in it and ask for those things to come directly uh, to you. You know, make the executive team responsible for culture, but anything like those surveys, uh, know that they can get very filtered before they reach you and so take steps to proactively root out that filtering if that may make sense do you see that oh yeah that's a it's a well-made point um part of health and safety improvement is sharing bad news Mm. uh, and sharing near misses and that's really hard right because organizationally you want to uh give confidence to the board that management is doing well and so there's a there's a tension between those two things but i think Directors are getting quite sophisticated on that. I mean, if you think about what's on a director's plate mm. in the Australian context at the moment, they want to know that you've got a cybersecurity response. They want to know that you've got a response to environmental risk. They want to know that you've got an ESG uh, offering or value standpoint which matches their community and their shareholders. They want to know that you've got health and safety right. So I think directors are getting used to bad news, to be honest, because lots of organisations are on learning curves on all, all of those issues. Um, so, you know, but it's a really well made point, Ben, that there's a, there's a degree of truth telling needed uh, across all spectrums of health and safety reporting, to be frank, in, including in relation to this area that we're talking about. Mm. It is interesting because on one level you could almost say there's a conflict of interest there in the sense that if I'm responsible for occupational health and safety um, or if I'm the chief executive and I'm sort of partly responsible for culture, it's not an easy thing, is it, to go into the board of directors and say, oh, and by the way, even though that's my responsibility, it ain't going so well. And yep. so, yeah, I, th- I think the sophistication is just being aware of that conflict and of interest and making your executive team feel safe and confident and capable to come in and talk to the board of directors about those kind of things. And as you say, yep. you know, to hear that bad news. 
I was just going to say the message is clear. The time is now to take it seriously and there's there's no longer an opportunity to hide and not just from a legal perspective, but I think as a community we all have to really get behind this and make sure we're creating safe places. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure to have you and thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a really great chat. Thank you so much. 